Last year, you had protests throughout the country with an articulated ask. A black person got killed by the cops, and we want those cops to be held accountable, or at least go through the process of accountability. This year, I don't even know what their plan was. Was it to overthrow the government? Was it to keep Donald Trump in office? Was it to kidnap Nancy Pelosi? Was it to attack Ayanna Pressley? Most of those people in this Pottery Barn revolution of middle-class white people who showed up at the Capitol wearing $1,500 worth of tactical gear and spending $1,200 on plane tickets in downtown hotels, they didn't really even have an articulated ask. So you can't compare the two. Hello, and from the Grio, I'm your co-host, Dr. Christina Greer. I'm your co-host, Dr. Jason Johnson, and you're listening to What's In It For Us. Oh, Jason, Jason, Jason. So we have a lot to discuss today. The inauguration of Joseph Biden as the 46th president of the United States and Kamala Harris as the 49th vice president of the United States and the lockdown and the security measures and the historic notion and nation that we're in. Number two, Biden's COVID plan. We got a vaccine, but it seems like we can't seem to get it together to disseminate it to the folks who need it. And in New York, at least, we're throwing it away at the end of the day. (sighs) And lastly, where do the white supremacists go from here? Jason. They've had their little party. They're planning more. They have lots of folks on edge, but what are they going to do with themselves now that their leader is leaving Washington, D.C. in utter shame? You know what? I'll tell you, Dr. Greer, the inauguration being in D.C. right now, the inauguration, like imagine the most inconvenient conference that used to be like Freaknik and CBC Weekend and it just invades your whole damn city. That is the inauguration. It used to be a party. It used to be something we're excited about. Now you're not really happy to go. That's what's going on. Biden's COVID plan. Look, I have questions. I have questions about this COVID COVID plan and how it's going to be implemented because I'm hearing so many crazy stories out there. Maybe we can break some of these down. I'm not trying to be a conspiracy theorist, but I got my tinfoil kufi on at this point. And then lastly, where do the white supremacists go from here? Dr. Green, we know the answer to that. Straight to the New York Times opinion column. <laughs> but the big question out of all these things is not what Biden's going to do. It's not what white nationalists are going to do. It's not even what COVID's going to do. It's what's in it for us. So Jason, I want to talk to you now about what's in my timeline, and it's the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King, and also remembering Kobe Bryant one year after the passage of his death. So we celebrated Dr. King's birthday on January 18th and his legacy, and I think what really burned me up this year in particular were the number of Republicans and Trump-supporting administrators who had the audacity to tweet the words of Dr. King, even though they spent years denigrating his his values and his mission. And I think the cherry on the cake for me was Kelly Loeffler, yes. who sat there with Reverend Warnock and said that he was some radical left-wing extremist, didn't belong in the church. Radical black socialist. And he is literally <laughs> passed the baton from the King family. And he's now leading the charge and leading Dr. King's mission to the Senate. He's actually going to make policy based on the principles of Dr. King. So as I was trying to remember, I did some reading of Dr. King, not just his famous speeches, but I mean, he was a prolific writer. As an academic, I'm just completely envious of the amount of writing he was able to do while also in the streets with people, being arrested, thinking about his family, worried about his own life. But I think I was just so overwhelmed with the hypocrisy. This is what's interesting to me. The one thing that I tend to look forward to every year on MLK Day is all the really funny memes as we make fun of those trashy MLK parties that used to happen in the 90s, where it's like, <laughs> let freedom ring while you shake your ass. We used to laugh at them. Ladies free before. 
four or five. I may not get there with you, but I'll be there before 1130. That used to be the most fun thing. We would all laugh at how trashy the flyers and stuff were for MLK Day. With like the picture of MLK in the distance, like a funeral program, but it's like girls in bikinis. Right. Yeah, I may or may not have attended one of those events. I may have a couple <laughs> of those still on my phone when it came with like a 40 ounce of bear Ruskin like this on the turntables. We used to be able to have fun on MLK Day. But this year, because what you're talking about, Dr. Green, that happens every year. There's always some Ted Cruz, the FBI. Like the FBI has been doing this since Obama. It's just trolling at this point. That's actually when I had to retweet the tweet at them and say, right. you know what? Delete this, sir. Delete it. You literally have had children separated from their parents in cages. You have zero right to speak about anything that Dr. King believed in. It's that whole meme of like, so you decided to tweet this. Here's why I shouldn't. There was a lot of that yesterday. What I tweeted them was the perfect time to delete this tweet was before you sent it. The second most perfect time is now. Delete it. I have found that the most aggressive reaction to any bad tweet I have seen in the last eight months is like, this you? Because <laughs> all the people who are tweeting like, wait, separating babies, sexual assault charges, blah, blah, blah. This you? This you, Ice? The racism and the white nationalism have been so aggressive and so over the top this year that whereas in the past, there was more space for us to maybe joke, laugh about it, point out the irony of some of these things. Now it just feels aggressive and dark and unpleasant. And it was like, I actually, in addition to having to get a brand new phone, which just pissed me off, but I had to log off for a lot of yesterday because I was just like, I can't watch this. I don't want to watch. I literally tweeted, don't let these people gaslight you all day. None of them care about Dr. Martin Luther King. I saw Kelly Leffler in particular, and I was like, oh, radical black socialists are only a problem when you're running against them. It was all just ridiculous. I'm not surprised though. MLK will continue to be a holiday where bigots and white nationalists troll black America and activists. Yeah. And then the peace studies, it don't, at the end of the day, was the Trump administration releasing the 1776 commission. It was worth worse than a seventh grade book report with pictures and miscellaneous quotes. So part for the course, they'll be gone in 24 hours. Let's move on to something that a lot of people will be processing the death of Kobe Bryant. A lot of his colleagues have been processing it all year round. I think people of our generation who essentially grew up with Kobe were remembering his legacy. In many ways, he sort of didn't get his flowers while he was with us. He didn't really start that second act fully. We knew that he was moving into Hollywood production and children's books and coaching women's basketball and, and had really been a mentor to so many women in the WNBA. And we see how they've been leaders this past year with Black Lives Matter movements, with voting registration, with speaking out in ways that folks in the NBA didn't. It would have been really fascinating to see how he incorporated the NBA talent and money to the WNBA and their radical analyses of politics in many ways and radical in the best sense of the word. How are you feeling as we process this? You're talking about the radical left-wing agenda of the WNBA? Is that what we're talking about, <laughs> yes. Dr. Green? Those wild, radical women? Yeah, and I say it in like the most gracious. You say it in the, like this affectionate way. Yes, I'm so <laughs> proud. I just want to buy season tickets just to support them considering they make pennies to the dollar of their male colleagues. I was actually a really big WNBA fan when it first started. Like I was a fan. Cheryl Swoops, Tina Thompson, Cynthia Cooper. Tina Thompson, who was the best power forward in the WNBA for years, is actually now the women's basketball coach at UVA. I'm a real fan of WNBA, but it fell off for me. So I felt like Kobe Bryant taking his credibility, his legend. And his money, let's be clear. Yeah, and his money. And putting that behind the WNBA, I thought was really impressive just from the standpoint of we don't see that in tennis. A lot of sports where there's a men's and women's, you don't see that much crossover. And he wasn't the only one, but he was the most prominent NBA player to do stuff for the WNBA. But I'll say this, Dr. Green, I thought about this last year. Kobe Bryant died on one of my best friend's birthdays. I was literally about to call my boy up and then I called him and I'm like, 
like crying on the phone. I was like, dude, you know, I just saw the news. I'll be bright that. It's weird because last year was so crazy with COVID that we were just sort of surrounded by death and surrounded by tragedy. We had so many people that died last year in other ways that I don't think we got to fully grasp how painful that was. Just like with Pac and with Biggie, we're saddened that we didn't see uh, River Phoenix. We're sad that we didn't get to see what else this person was going to do. Right. And I have a feeling that Kobe Bryant was already on the path to doing some really good philanthropic things. Well, I mean, I'm thinking about the fact that Kobe won an Oscar. Yeah. And he clearly moved into filmmaking. And we've seen in the past year alone the importance of so many Black filmmakers being able to get seed money from whomever and make some really important cultural either documentaries or short films that have changed the whole public discourse, especially for Black people. So there's the Hollywood piece as well that I think he was moving into. Like, who knows? We've seen what LeBron's been able to do. LeBron's 36. Kobe had a teeny bit of a head start, if you will. And so planting those seeds, what could he have created? I mean, we've talked about Lovecraft Country. We've talked about Watchmen. Obviously, Ava DuVernay is mentoring so many people. What could he have done there? And then also, I think going back to the WNBA, the fact that he was so invested in the pipeline of girls to get to the WNBA. I know he's got his Mamba camp. I know a lot of young guys are still in that system and that's the pipeline to get them through the NCAA and NBA ultimately. But he was really strengthening the pipeline for young girls. And who's to say what he would have done? He loved soccer. He loved tennis. He loved basketball. It sounds corny to say this, but I remember this. It was a couple years ago. The last big push that the WNBA had is when they had that trio of Deladon, Brittany Griner, and Skylar Diggins. And they all came out around the same time. And they were like, cool, this is going to be our LeBron and Wade or whatever. It never quite worked out. Deladon ended up being the best player. Brittany Griner got into some legal issues, blah, blah, blah. And then Skylar Diggins just kind of bounced around. The next great thing for the WNBA was going to be Kobe's daughter. And we never got to see that either. A legacy of one of the greatest basketball players in the world. And he said before he passed, he said, my daughter's actually better at the game than I am. And we never got to see what might have been one of the greatest stars in the league. Right. Well, to show our love and respect for the late Kobe Bryant, let's hear from some of his peers about his impact on and off the court. As we know, the Black Mama's legacy will be more than just being one of the greatest basketball players of all time. And believe me, Kobe was truly a gifted and intelligent student of the game. I remember him saying, these guys are playing checkers and I'm out here playing chess. And I would say, I guess so, Kobe. I don't know how to play chess. First time I, I met him was my rookie season in the NBA. My three favorite players was Michael Jordan, Allen Iverson, and Kobe Bryant. Ten games into my rookie season, we played the Lakers here on this court. Shaq, Carl Malone, Gary Payton, and Kobe Bryant. I, uh, I told Kobe the story in 2016 at the All-Star game when he allowed us and myself, Chris Paul, and Carmelo to host a thank you dinner for him. And I told him in that game, in the fourth quarter, I got my opportunity to guard him for the first time. And it was in transition, and I was scared as hell. And I remember thinking to myself, you watched him play over and over, you know his move, you know his move. And I just guessed right, and I ripped him. And I remember thinking, this don't matter if I don't finish this basket. And I came down, I hit the floater, and I just thought to myself, I cannot believe what just happened. I'm calling all my boys back at the crib and let them know that I just ripped Kobe Bryant. And that was my first opportunity. He, he don't remember that moment because it wasn't a big moment. But for me, it meant the world. It meant the world that I got a chance to play against one of my idols. 
want to be with my girl, and be my a family. father. Yes! That was the most exciting part of me seeing him show up to games and roll with his daughter and be the father. Right. The, the, when you become a father, that's the most beautiful gift you can get in this world to be able to have that relationship with your kids. When he retired, I had him come to my spot in Inglewood because I wanted to give him a gift. A gift to me with my six-fold Chevrolet. I gave it to him, I wanted him to have it. But when he came to see me, me and my son was in the studio and he was talking to my son and the information that he was giving my son was so, it was like a teacher. It was the same stuff that I had told my son, but he didn't hear me the way he heard him. It was so much confirmation that I needed from Kobe to come in and, and mentor my son at that time because he had made the decision not to play football and to try other things in life. And Kobe gave him the confirmation that Whatever you do, just be great at what you do. He was the type of athlete that even the enemies loved him. Like, and that's hard to say because when you're competing, you don't really like the person that you're up against. But it was something about his drive that made the enemy respect his drive because he never gave up and he always went at him. And I'm just so hurt, but I'm so happy that his legacy will live on through people like us. And, and we putting shows together to, to keep his name and yep. keep his spirit going in the righteous way. And I think the NBA should change that logo mm. to him. I'm going to speak on it because I felt like Michael Jordan logo was already out there on the shoes. His shoes is everywhere. Yeah, this, you, you can't deny that. Man. Yeah, so, and I think Jordan will proceed and say, you know what, let my little brother get that because the players right now are more his peers yeah. and his, they look up to him exactly. more. Jordan is the generation before that. Right. But I don't, didn't see Jordan like they seen Kobe. So I feel like that would be the proper gesture for the NBA to do to go ahead and Make it happen. Jerry West already given the approval, so make it go. Kobe is a brother to me. And from the time I was in high school to watching him afar, to getting in this league at 18, watching him up close, all the battles that we had throughout my career, the one thing that we always shared is that determination to just want to win and just want to be great. And the fact that I'm here now means so much to me. I want to continue along with my teammates to continue his legacy, not only for this year, but as long as we can play the game of basketball that we love, because that's what Kobe Bryant will want. So in the words of Kobe Bryant, Mamba out, but in the words of us, not forgotten. Live on, brother. Okay, Dr. Johnson. So the inauguration of Joseph R. Biden, the 46th president of the United States of America. So Biden is changing his Secret Service detail to bring on agents who served him while he was vice president. Why? Because there are some concerns that some of the Secret Service agents and even the National Guard who were there in D.C. are possibly insurgents or susceptible to the messaging of Donald Trump and his ilk. So that does not make me feel great. Number two, Kamala Harris and Nancy Pelosi may not be present for all of the festivities just for safety reason, separating the succession of power. We know that two officers have already been suspended for appearing to aid the insurrectionists on the day of the riots. And we saw some videos where there were far too many police officers who were quite gentle and kind to men who had swastikas and Confederate flags and pepper spray and were beating down the doors of the Capitol. And the Secret Service is investigating one of its own for posting a pro-Trump meme and praising the rioters who stormed the Capitol. So as we think about this inauguration, and we know we're on edge for potentially 
potentially violent protests in all 50 state capitals. The FBI has warned us about these things. These are internal bulletins where law enforcement partners are very clear that we are in somewhat of a danger. We have now, you've seen it, and I hope you tell our listeners about it, 25,000 National Guard troops are in Washington worried about this attack. And then Trump's elaborate send-off for himself before Biden's inauguration, and he wants a 21-gun salute. But of course, we know he doesn't have the class, dignity, or respect to even attend the inauguration. And so I want to ask you this question. Everyone keeps saying, well, thank goodness we're having this peaceful transition of power. And for me, it's actually not a peaceful transition of power. The sitting president is not attending the inauguration of the incoming president. That, to me, is highly worrisome. The fact that Donald Trump is essentially saying, he's a cheater, I know I won, and I ain't coming. Not like anybody wants him there. We know that Obama and Bush and Clinton are going to be there. Jimmy Carter is the only other living president. He will not be attending for health reasons. And also Jimmy Carter is 137 years old. I don't expect him to come and I want to protect Jimmy Carter at all costs. And he's teaching Sunday school somewhere. So And building a house simultaneously. And building houses for homeless people. From the wood from his grandpappy's farm that he gave up whilst he was president <laughs> and the peanut farm. It was something that Donald Trump didn't do. But I think I'm on the one hand excited about Joe Biden being sworn in. I am concerned about the fact that there are far too many times though during the inauguration where Biden and Harris will be together. And I'm just like, I think these threats are real. So why don't you guys just actually scale it down? Let the flags be the flags. I love the 200,000 flags. It's beautiful. It reminds me of the gates that were in Central Park. We get it. But let's just move through January 20th so we can actually get to work. What do you think? I'm kind of moved by all this. So I'm going to hit you with this question, Dr. Greer. What's the first inauguration you went to? You remember? I went to Obama's. Okay. So you were downtown then. Had you been to any of them before? No, because why would I want to? Who else would motivate me to pack up my bags and stand out in the cold and risk pneumonia? Nobody. There you go. So January, what day was it? January 20th, 2009. And our mutual friend, I'm not going to shout her out, but she worked in the Obama administration. She'll be working in the Biden administration. She got me orange tickets and I was next to Emmett Smith and Tony Morrison in my little section looking at Barack Obama. You took Cornell with me. <laughs> it was your fault. It was your fault, Dr. Green. Sorry, Cornell. You didn't make a single phone call to ask somebody for a ticket. I did. I didn't say that. I just said you took his seat. I'm saying he didn't call to get a ticket. I did. Therefore, ergo, I had a ticket and he didn't. He's the only black person in America who didn't call in all the chips to get a ticket to the inauguration. That's not my fault. I did not take his seat. I literally just sent a text and I got orange tickets. Boom. So my point is that I've only been to two inaugurations and I've never been to any of the formal events. I went to the 1992 inauguration because I was still in high school and I was here in the DC metro area and all me and my friends, we got out from the suburbs, we came out. This is 1992. For those who remember this, we went and saw the cranberries and told the wet sprocket who were performing on the mall. (laughs) (laughs) Zombie. Uh, (laughs) Listen, don't sleep on the cranberries. Hey, hey, walk on the ocean, step on a stone. (laughs) Toad West Rocket was some good stuff. But we went to that because it was Clinton and we were kids and we were like, oh my God, our parents were excited. They let us have permission to go into D.C. But that and Obama's are the only ones that I ever cared about. And I was there in 09. We hadn't even met yet. I don't think we knew each other in 09. And it was freezing cold and I was actually doing work also for Al Jazeera. It was freezing that day. I don't care about inaugurations other than those two. So the security and all the pomp and circumstance, if there ain't gonna be no parties and there aren't this year. There's no galas. There's no galas. There's no parties. We're not gonna see Dr. Biden and Joe Biden do a a first dance and anything else like that. So I'm like you. I don't care if you do the whole thing on YouTube and stream it. Just be president because we know he's gonna start getting busy tomorrow. And that's fine. And one thing to actually, I'm sorry, I'm 
sorry, do you hear that? It's silent because Trump's <laughs> off Twitter. And so we don't even right. have to deal. As of tomorrow, we will never have to talk about Donald Trump again. And that's the other thing that I'm kind of happy about. Yeah, well, I will say, I know that there's no magic bullet for January 20th. I know that not everything is going to be perfected overnight. And of course, everyone's like, oh, you know, what's the difference between Biden and Trump? There's a lot of difference. Joe Biden is already getting his executive orders in line, as presidents do, so that when he is sworn in, he can make sure that the Keystone Pipeline doesn't go into effect. That helps environmentalists. That helps our native lands. That helps our native communities. Huge. He's coalescing members of his party to make sure we actually have a Voting Rights Act sort of re-upped. And we're going to put together this John Lewis voting bill. There are actually a lot of things that he's doing. You know, I have a long day with chatting on being a talking head, but I actually have a nice little bottle of champagne in the fridge because I think that we do need to have a collective celebratory moment making it through the four years of a Donald Trump administration since so many millions of Americans actually didn't make it through. You were going to pop that champagne open anyway, so I don't see how you're using this as an excuse. <laughs> I don't know why any of us believe that. I mean, you're like, yes, <laughs> I was only going to drink this champagne <laughs> in celebration. <laughs> in celebration. We both have a very long day talking about this importance of the Biden-Harris administration, but it does mean something that we're on a new path and hopefully the policies will reflect that. Speaking of, which brings us to our second topic, the Biden COVID plan. So last week we had on Dr. Florencia Grippolite, who sort of walked us through the fact versus the fiction of the vaccine. It seems as though the vaccine is in certain states in abundance. Other states, folks, especially seniors, are like, when can I get it? What's going on? We have absolutely no clue about the dissemination of the vaccine. It seems like the coordination efforts are quite janky. And sadly, in New York, there are quite a few stories that are coming out where they've defrosted the vaccine. They don't have enough people who have shown up to take it, and they end up throwing it in the tree. So we have people who desperately want the vaccine. They want to take it. We've got frontline workers who want to take it. And police officers and fire and nurses and janitors and all these people who work at hospitals, nursing homes, or prisoners. We could go to jails and prisons and just give it out. So this coordination effort is quite frustrating. And I'm a touch worried about the Biden administration, how they'll be able to walk in, invest the money that we need, not just in the vaccine, but in the dissemination of the vaccine so that we can get rid of this public health crisis. Well, not only that, Dr. Greer, but, you know, there's a lot of polling out there, frontline workers, a third of whom don't want to take the vaccine. And we can't just call those people anti-vaxxers and we can't just call them MAGA people, because if you're a frontline worker, you probably know more about this than the rest of us. So whatever their concerns are, we got to treat at least some of those as legitimate concerns. We've all thought that this was always going to be logistically difficult. It was always going to be expensive. It was always going to be fits and starts. And we were always going to be stuck with it for a while, not because we want to constantly look backwards, but so much time was lost because of how this was mismanaged last year. The numbers have gotten so large because of how this is mismanaged last year. I was just reading another study this morning about the number of people who end up back in the hospital after COVID in the UK, senior citizens having adverse reactions in Norway to the two steps of Pfizer. This ain't going to go easy. I think of it in terms of like, you remember the Obamacare rollout? That was just a website and people had trouble with it. That wasn't navigating human beings. That wasn't dealing with a virus where we don't know. So I'm happy to Biden's got a plan. And if he wants to deliver this by airplane, drone, Pony Express, whatever he wants to do, that's cool. But I don't expect this to be a smooth process. And quite frankly, every single time there is a mistake or every single time a new story that comes out, it makes people more apprehensive about participating and getting vaccinated. I think what I am encouraged by, I will say this, is that Joe Biden believes in science and he believes in scientists. And so even though the rollout has been subpar, to say the very least, we have to remember, though, that there have been scientists who actually 
have probably been thinking about the rollout and have not been asked about their opinions or they have not been listened to because Donald Trump did not believe in scientists or science. He literally has been in rooms to say, well, I know more than you. And the scientists were like, I'm sorry, tell me more, please. He's like, I do. I just know things. The man who does not read was just like, yeah, I just know more than you. I know more than the generals. He knew more than the firefighters when it came to the fires in California. So we had a megalomaniac, narcissistic, incompetent fool at the helm for four years. And now I think I am encouraged that Joe Biden will actually say, okay, so this is your wheelhouse. How do you get to the population A that wants it? How do we educate the population that is on the fence? And then how do we slowly begin to convince the population that says, no, I don't want it. And as our episode last week, when we talked to Dr. Polite, the fears and concerns that people have about not wanting to take the vaccine are valid. It is not enough just to say like, oh, come on, take it, get over it. It'll save your life. That is not something to think about or to ignore when people give you real reasons why they don't want to take it. The stories that I've read have been really interesting about this is actually something that could save our lives and get us back into booty shaking. This could get us back to brunch. This could get us back to traveling. This could get us back into the classroom if we want to. The benefits far outweigh the risks, but we just need to articulate to people how that is so. I think there's a part of this that can't be overlooked, which is there are a lot of people in this country. And all of us obviously have been affected. We can't go to the movies. You in this movie. You and your Marvel people. That matters to me. I had to watch Wonder Woman 84 <laughs> in my house. I was very angry about this. This is a substantive problem. I didn't get to go see no basketball games this year. This matters. I ain't seen no step shows. But I think you make a really important point. This pandemic has affected everyone in specific ways. Like, I've been to the theater since March 11th, and I feel like I'm without oxygen. This is the longest I've ever been in the United States as an adult. This is the longest time period I've been in this country, and I feel claustrophobic. Yeah, because you've been on the run from the cops for years. Hey, listen. But the point is... <laughs> no, I do. She on the run, y'all. But the thing is, I think... So I show up on TV everywhere. Right, right, right. <laughs> You can't find me. I'm hiding in plain sight, homie. Come get some. Come find Dr. Greer. But the thing is, it's amazing how used to trauma, difficulty, and some standard living people can get used to. So you've got the anti-maskers who haven't changed their lives at all. They're like, okay, I'm going to keep doing this. But I do think getting people to believe what life could be like or what life looks like on the other side gets harder and harder. It keeps dawning on me. And you said it since March 11th. It's my birthday week on March 14th. It's coming up on a year of this. And obviously, it's very easy to remember life before the pandemic. Let's not complicate but this coming up on a year is making me realize how much further off I think it'll be before I have any of those experiences again. And that also changes people's incentive to want to do something risky because they've gotten used to sheltering in place. Biden says he's going to do a massive public health education program with this, which I think is really important. I don't care if you show me Michelle Obama, Barack Obama, Kobe Bryant's widow, LeBron James, and PK Subban for the hockey fans out there. I don't care if you show me all these people taking the COVID vaccine. It doesn't matter. That's not going to make me want to go and stand in line outside of Padre Stadium in L.A. or the Lions Stadium in Detroit for three and a half hours to get a shot in my arm. It's got to be more incentivizing. I hope they're good at doing it because we are about three to five months away from mandates at jobs. That's going to be a whole nother level of fights. When you start having jobs that are like, you can't come back until you're vaccinated, people are going to be fighting against that. Yeah, or schools that say you can't come in unless you're vaccinated. There are a lot of places where it's like, got to have your TV shot or your meningitis or whatever it is for certain occupations. So what's the difference? I think also, though, you hit the nail on the head. Some people's lives have not changed. There are some people who are still going to Bow Wow concerts. Houston, (laughs) Uh, get it together. Can you name one Bow Wow song? I can't. 
I can't. Really. I can't think of one song. But I did listen. I did go to the movie theaters to see Roll Bounce. We also Roll Bounce the movie. It was great. I dressed up. It was a whole thing. So we do have some people who haven't changed their behavior, which has to be part of the PSAs, and it has to also, I think, come from people who are more localized within a community. My sister said last week on the podcast, it has to be a multi-pronged approach. So some people will get it if they see Michelle Obama get. It. Some people will get it if they see LeBron get it. But other people, it's like you know what? The deacon at the church needs to get it, and so right. that's just one thing. Okay, so as Joe Biden gets settled in, Jason, as the president of the United States, he's getting his cabinet, hopefully pushed through the Senate. We'll talk about Pete Buttigieg's head of transportation in another episode. I don't need that smoke. <laughs> oh, I right. Don't need that Sorry, smoke. I forgot you have friends. That was like, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. You can tell today. I'm like, Cornell West, Pete Buttigieg, come at me. So they've had their party. They're essentially holding America hostage to a certain extent, saying, we're going to come back and we're going to be bigger and badder than ever. And we're going to go to all 50 states, not just Washington. D.C. And they sort of tipped their hand just a touch and said, and we got cops and former military and some current military on our side. And we're armed to the teeth because the Second Amendment says that I can do that. I can clearly threaten governors and I'll have members of the Republican Party say, oh, well, it's not that bad. And I think for me, Jason, as we think about where these folks go, because they've been in our community, they've just been excavated, and I don't think they go back underground. No, they do not. I've been so angered, though, by the talking points, because Republicans always have their talking points on fleek. Democrats are all over the place. They wake up. Talking points of right. Yep. And their talking point as of late is what we saw on January 6th is the exact same thing as what we saw all summer with Black Lives Matter protests. And I reject that fundamentally on a host of levels. But that seems to be their entree into having conversations with moderates and more center-leaning Democrats. And I think that Joe Biden is a touch too susceptible to listening to those folks who are just saying like, yeah, we got to get a lot of this protest under control. And it's absolutely Absolutely not the same thing. There's a couple things with this. One, the Republicans have always made both sides arguments. That's always been their thing. They're like, oh, yes, they're one. you guys did it. Bill Clinton 20 years ago had a consensual relationship, and that's the same thing as the Access Hollywood tape with Donald Trump. That's what they do. And the arguments only work on people who are cowardly or non-committed to common sense and reality. They're targeting the Susan Collins and the Joe Mansions of the world because nobody else buys the idea that what happened last summer is in any way similar to what happened last year. The main reason being, without going down that rabbit hole, is last year you had protests throughout the country with an articulated ask. A black person got killed by the cops and we want those cops to be held accountable or at least go through the process of accountability. This year, I don't even know what their plan was. Was it to overthrow the government? Was it to keep Donald Trump in office? Was it to kidnap Nancy Pelosi? Was it to attack Ayanna Pressley? Most of those people in this pottery barn revolution of middle-class white people who showed up at the Capitol wearing $1,500 worth of tactical gear and spending $1,200 on plane tickets in downtown hotels, they didn't really even have an articulated ask. So you can't compare the two. You can't compare death threats Hang Mike Pence. Guillotine. You all brought wood and reconstructed a guillotine in front of the Capitol. How is this the same? We get shot for a lemonade stand. But to answer your question where these people go, well, there's a couple of places. One, like I said at the beginning of the show, they're going to go to the New York Times op-ed page because the New York Times has an op-ed. And sadly, sadly, Jason, they're going to go to universities too. Yeah. And that is what infuriates They're going to go to universities. They're going to go to New York Times op-ed page. We had a conversation with MAGA supporters about what they think of the insurrection, et cetera, et cetera. These people, 
people are going to be mainstream the way that they have been getting mainstream because of sort of editorial attitude in mainstream news outlets that always want to have conversations with people whose ideology is very crystal clear. And so what happens is you have too many of these discussions. I want to find out why you're a racist. What difference does it make? You're a racist. You don't believe in democracy anymore. Don't forget the first few years of talking about the Proud Boys was all about talking about their outfits and the fact that they drank Paps Blue Ribbon beer. It's like, oh, wow. So this is pretty cool. So you wear plaid and you love jeans. You're bad boys. Yeah. I remember first learning about the Proud Boys in GQ. You know, I'm a religious reader of the New Yorker in GQ. And I was like, you know, I'm kind of confused because I love the long form articles in GQ. And I was like, wait, are they profiling like a racist? You got to remember that a member of the Proud Boys is a co-founder of Vice. And Vice makes good content. So these guys were integrated into the media because you have to, you look at the Barry Weeses and you look at the Bill Mars and everything else like that. And you look at the far left people, some of whom don't even live in the country anymore, particularly the far left. There has always been a radical left fascination with white nationalists who are well-dressed and eloquent because they think that these are parlor arguments as opposed to legitimate life and death issues for black and brown people. That's why you can have someone tweeting this morning saying, oh my gosh, they're all just going to be oligarchs in office and there's no difference between Biden and Trump. I was like, Muslim ban? Rejoining the Paris Climate Accords? Of putting a legitimate person as the head of the Civil Rights Department? Ask all those families separated at the border if they see a difference between Donald Trump and Joe Biden who said in the first 100 days, I'm going to reunite all these families and kids. So I'm not surprised that these white nationals will find a place because the far white left in America has always seemed to want to play footsie with these kinds of people. I don't even think it's footsie. I think that they are fully in bed. We've moved past the footsie stage. We are in bed. And I think what has always frustrated me about the far left is that in their quote unquote analysis, it never factors in black people. It never factors in communities of color. Ask Mariah Chidea of what she said about Nate Silver. And Mariah Chidea has been a mentor of mine for quite some time. And so I'm so proud of her for putting things on Front Street because I think so much of these individuals and these conglomerates function on our silence. They're predicated on us not speaking out about their bad behavior. And so as my grandmother used to always say, she turned the light on. That does a lot because once you turn the light on folks, many of them have to adjust. And so I'm really hoping though, Jason, because sadly I've seen far too many stories today about Joe Biden comes into office. Where are the white nationalists going to go? How do they feel about it? Let's go to Ohio and ask them. And it's like, no, did we not learn our lesson four years ago, eight years ago, 12 years ago with these folks? And so I think until we get a lot more substantive diversity, ideological diversity in these newsrooms, not just racial and ethnic, because we've seen sometimes you could have a person of color at the helm and still have nonsense like this consistently. Absolute nonsense. I'm looking at you, gray lady. Listen, Jason, I know you're chuckling today. I don't even I, know who the gray lady is. <laughs> the gray lady is the New York Times. Oh, I have never heard of that name for the New oh York Times. Oh my goodness, Jason. Look, I'm not a New Yorker. I don't you remember NABJ? I am. I'm paying membership dues. I don't know all these things. Oh, Lord. <laughs> I read the Chicago Defender. I don't know what you're talking about. I read the Rio. Yes, I read the Rio and have a column in the Amsterdam News. We need to support ethnic media at all costs. But I think in closing, when we think about what's in it for Black people, this is also a time for us to understand, for us to not have to deal with these nonsensical stories. We need to be reading stories at the Rio. We need to be reading ethnic media because that's actually the reporting that directly relates to what's in it for us. And I got to tell you, whether we're talking about COVID, whether we're talking about media, whether we're talking about the next couple of weeks, we have to now, and it's not just because Biden's in office and Harris, but everything going forward is what's in it for us. Everything going forward. Because if these people don't handle these white nationalists and don't find a way to handle them, it's going to be us who suffers the worst if this administration isn't successful. 
Thank you so much for listening to What's In It For Us. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star review and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcast and share it with everyone you know. Please email all questions, suggestions, and compliments, especially on me and my voice and my outfit, to podcast at thegrio.com. The What's In It For Us podcast is brought to you by The Grio and executive produced by Kevin Y. Brown and produced by Abdul Kadoos. 